Hey there, welcome to the Girl Go Global podcast, where faith and works are empowered. With every episode, we're embracing our multi-layered lives with faith, know-how, and grit. I'm your host, Dr. Jasmine, and I'm ready to go global with you. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Girl Go Global podcast, where faith and works are empowered. I'm Dr. Jasmine, and I'm so excited to have with me Miss Lanice Stevenson today. But before we get into this great conversation with her, I want to say this episode is sponsored by JLM Global Consulting, my business, my baby, y'all. JLM Global Consulting is a communications firm specializing in unpacking visionary ideas, assessing challenges, and providing the framework and training for persuasive, purposeful, and powerful written and verbal communication. I love alliteration, y'all. Our mission is to provide the formula for strategic messaging and content development. So whether you are an author, industry leader, public figure, business owner, or organizational leader who is looking to add value to your teams, JLM Global Consulting is here to provide you with that communication strategy to take your business and your brand to the next level. So, If you don't mind, if you're interested in anything that I've said about JLM Global Consulting, please visit jlmglobalconsulting.com for more information and schedule time to check in and have a free 30-minute consultation to see how we can make your communications go global. But first, today, before I look forward to hearing from you, I will be talking to Ms. Lanice Stevenson. She is a scholar, researcher, lecturer at the Johns Hopkins University. She consults with schools and district leaders in schools across the United States, y'all. I have with me Ms. Lanice Stevens, who is the founder of the Center for Applied Research and Equity, otherwise known as CARE. It's a startup research firm aiming to bridge the gap between research and practice. I have with me Lanice. Please, please, Lanice, tell the global girls more about yourself. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Um, First of all, thank you for inviting me to your platform. Um, As you said, I am um, an entrepreneur, longstanding entrepreneur. I am a scholar, researcher, but most importantly, I am a mom. That is... Mm the most important uh, job that I've ever had and the most rewarding um, job. So um, I am truly an advocate. I have been an educator for more than half of my life. And so much of the things that I do come from uh, motherhood, education, advocacy. Um, And so that's a little bit about me. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have this conversation because this is a conversation that I don't normally have, but I think it's a very important conversation. So today we're going to talk a little bit about your advocacy work. And I just first want to open up our girl chat and to ask you why educational advocacy? I read in your bio a few things, uh, one of your bios, a few things. I want to know where that passion comes from and why um, you've decided to even found an organization with that specialty. Absolutely. Um, That question, I'm asked that question a lot. And um, my response always kind of chokes me up um, because, you know, I advocate Typically, we advocate either for people who we know that are experiencing some sort of inequity or we've experienced it ourselves. And um, to understand why I advocate, you have to understand who I was as a student um, and my upbringing. And so um, early on in my childhood, uh, my aunt was a teacher. She taught me how to read. 
when I was three years old. I was an avid reader. And so of course, when I entered into Baltimore City Public Schools, um, I was automatically label gifted. And mm-hmm. so my education experience in K through eight was amazing. And I saw the inequities very early. Um, I had my community best friend, uh, Lynette, who lived across the street from me. We both came from the same zip code, the same block. Our, you know, All of our families were um, middle class. But when we went into those school doors, we had very different learning experiences. Most of my learning experiences were fun, field trips, projects, never book work. And I say never book work because I didn't even understand what book work was until I would walk home um, from the you know, school to uh, our neighborhood. And I would hear about all the horror stories that my friends were going through. And these were my community best friends. Even though we lived on the same block, we never were in the same classes. And my life was set for me, right? My education, I knew exactly which school I was going to go to. I knew I was going to be in advanced academics, which was segregated from everyone else. And I didn't like that. And so early on in sixth grade, I became um, a student leader. And I was student council president from sixth grade to eighth grade. And I fought, even then I was an advocate for the very same things that I'm fighting for today. And before I was fighting for other people, but when I matriculated over to Western High School, my first year was amazing. I was always a 4.0 student, really, uh, really good, you know, academically. And I met one teacher, I will not say the teacher's name, mm-hmm. but that teacher ruined my high school experience. Oh, wow. It still brings like tears <laughs> to my mm. eyes today, even though we have reconciled the things that this teacher did to me. It was a part of that teacher's existence to embarrass me, to then solicit his friends to embarrass me. And it ruined my high school education. I still have my friends and all of that, but academically, I love learning. Mm -hmm. I have spent the majority of my life just learning, learning and teaching. And when I was 23 years old, I approached the teacher and told the teacher what that person did to me. And what the teacher said was, I was trying to make you better. You were so smart. And I said, so humiliating me, embarrassing me every day and getting your friends, your other teacher friends, my teachers to not show care and concern and and empathy for me, that's the way that you make me better. And (laughs) so in my life, in my education, I went from absolutely enjoying learning, loving learning, loving school. I spent most of my time in school to going from a 4.0 student to like a 2.7 student. Mm -hmm. And at Western High School, everyone was the coveted Western diploma. Like you, you go to this school, I was an A course. So top course. And I didn't get a Western diploma because of this one teacher, this one credit. And that just like, I don't care how many degrees I have. I have, this will be my fifth degree that I'm earning. We're going to talk about it. It's never like taking the place of this one thing. And so I know how important teachers are to students Mm -hmm. and I know how they can be gatekeepers. I know how they can literally 
shift the trajectory. And if I had not been academically sound, if I didn't have peer support, if I didn't have the support of my parents and my, you know, my family, I would probably not have been successful. And so that keeps me up at night because I know other students are going through the exact same thing. And in fact, I know other teachers are going through the exact same thing with their colleagues and with their administration. And so from the, from the district level, you know, to, you know, um, the state level in terms of policy development, I am there to make sure that I'm talking to the people who are making the decisions so that they can see the blind spots that they have. And I tell my story very often because if I don't tell my story, nobody's going to believe it. They're not going to think that I had struggles in school because I've done so well, um, you know, academically in the post-secondary sector. So it still brings tears to my eyes every single time I talk about it because it's such a deep experience and it was 30 years ago. And wow. so, you know, that, that's just, yeah. So if you want to understand why I do everything I do, everything I do, even in entrepreneurship leads back to that moment for me. So mm, yeah. that's yep. so good. Yeah. And it's such an interesting story. Yeah. I can't say that I have had that experience, but I'm so sorry that you had that experience, but you were able to do what so many people are not able to do is speak up for yourself later on when you saw this teacher. And so I commend you for having a voice at that time to absolutely advocate for yourself. How about that? Absolutely. Wow. So what are you finding are the challenges or things that you're focused on with your your business um, as far as advocacy now 2022 we have a lot of things happening what are some of um you know your top three areas that you face with in the advocacy space wow so the very when I say the primary challenge or topic that I uh deal with is the misunderstanding of the problem, right? Mm. A lot of people look at symptoms and say that they're problems when, and when you do that, you create an intervention that's like a band-aid for someone who's hemorrhaging, right? And so when people do not have a core understanding, a deep understanding of why we have the systemic issues that we have. That's a non-starter, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's having to develop the capacity of superintendents, of lawmakers, you know, school board, uh, school boards to understand what they do not see. That's number Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And doing it in such a way, because I'm a black woman, and so the archetype I've always, my archetype meets me at the door, no matter how kind I am, no matter how empathetic, how all of these things, um, I have to think about the ways in which I broach conversations that are foundational and connected to racism, classism, and sexism. Mm. And those isms Uh, A couple of different scholars talk about, you know, cultures like the air we breathe, but oppression is as well. Mm. And when you have been, had any privilege, and I am privileged at this point, this point, 
<laughs> but if you've always been privileged, it's very difficult to see outside of that. You have plenty of blind spots. And if no one ever wants to tell you those blind spots because of the hierarchical structure, right? Then you have this false sense of understanding. And so I encounter people like that all the time, right? It's like Groundhog Day. That's how I always start <laughs> with my clients. The second thing is institutional inertia. Mm. And so even when you help the leaders, the lawmakers, uh, the board members to come to understand the problems, the institution, which are the people, don't want to change even if it would benefit them. And so that's the second thing. And so I had to develop solutions in my business to help people with that. And people have a lot of misunderstandings and they use language uh, to communicate ideas that are not the same. So they often talk past each other, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the third problem. So when I am having conversations with people, I always have to make sure that they understand exactly what I'm talking about, right? And those are the, the biggest challenges. And those are the threads. So I could give you specific examples, but when I look at the themes across the board, those are the three big things. The students are never the problem. Notice I never talked about the students. Yeah, I was, the students I was wondering. are not the problem, right? <laughs> they're doing what they're supposed to be doing at that age. They make mistakes. They're tinkering. They are leading with curiosity. They're taking risks. They are doing what they're supposed to be doing developmentally. Mm -hmm. It is the adults who are supposed to be there as stage coaches, right? As caring and compassionate uh, leaders, supporters, they're not doing what they need to be doing. Mm. And so a lot of even the issues that we are facing right now lead back to those things. Mm. So that's so good. You said so much with your comments there. One thing I do know, I've heard someone say, um, a colleague that I've worked with in the past, they used to say, the problem is not the problem. You know, so, so often we view this one thing as the main issue, but if you peel back the onion, you peel back those layers, you'll find yeah. what the source of that problem is. And then you talk about this whole need for organizational development um, and refinement, um, and as well as um, an increase in enhanced communication so that way people are not talking past each other. I so yeah. concur with that, but I, but I believe um, those issues arise in many industries, not just education. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things that, like you said, I didn't hear you say was, you know, the role of the student, um, the role the student may play. Do you feel that these core issues that you raise are hampering the students? In what ways do you feel that they're hampering the students' educational um, education, um, I guess, today? Like, what oh impact is it having? So that way, if we can start to have these conversations about what the impact is and what's surfacing as issues for students, maybe we can have some um, remedy and remediation take place. Absolutely. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so here is my soapbox real quick. Mm -hmm. If I am born in my social positional factors, my race, my class, my ethnicity, and my gender already exclude me from the American dream, 
in many, many ways. That's in society. When I was born, right? Mm-hmm. And the school system is a system, this is an institution that was developed from society. How can I expect for students to thrive in a school system that was built on the values, the ideals of society? So let's mm-hmm. just start there. And that's why I talk to people about starting from an asset-based approach. In order for a student to do well, they have had to build competencies that we never measure. And so the first thing I did as a researcher is I started measuring them, but we didn't Mm. even have the measurements to really do it. So I had to use um, mixed methods and qualitative. I had to do a lot of semi-structured interviews to unearth all of these assets that these students have. Mm. When you think about the, the traditional, if I could take an average black male in Baltimore, he is living in likely a single family home led by either a single mom or someone other than his mother. Mm-hmm. There may be quite a few people in the home. He's likely in a, a home that is low income and he's in a community that is filled with crime and violence, right? Mm-hmm that those experiences are non-shared experiences with your traditional privileged white, you know, student. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the research, all these findings, these research-based practices are based on traditional white males. So how can you tell me that these practices, all of these interventions are supposed to work for this particular student? That Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. And when this particular student doesn't respond well to this intervention, then we blame the student. It's never the student's fault. Mm. It's, I just, I was a teacher for a long time and I can speak from being in that classroom. I was in the classroom for 12 years. I stayed as long as I possibly could. Mm. And I have students right now who I help. they will tell you, I helped save them. One of my students, Devin Allen, who was on Time Magazine twice, He is still my kid. I'm his favorite teacher. You know why? Because I never gave up on him. Mm -hmm. I allowed him to make mistakes. I knew that he, like everybody else, like I did, was going to make mistakes. Right? Yeah. But how I dealt with Devin, I said, listen, you're going to get out that hallway, whatever class you don't want to go to. I'm going to get the, you know, the, um, you know, the the work from that teacher and you're going to come to my class. And that I would have the teacher come and see how he responded. Mm-hmm. And it was because I cared about him. We have a fundamental need to be loved, to feel safe physically and psychologically. These are basic needs and we're motivated to do these things. And so if we can't have it the easy way, we're going to have it the hard way. But mm-hmm. regardless, we're going to meet our needs. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's so what I see. And so when you have all these oppressive forces that have been here, we have grown and developed in this oppressive system. We have owned some of that oppression. Hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? For sure, for sure. Yeah. And so when I talk about institutional inertia, I'm talking about every single staff member in that school system. Baltimore City has a lot of black and brown staff members. They are just a part of the problem as much as their white counterparts. Hmm. It is the system. It is them working together, even when the institution doesn't work on their behalf. And that's what I see. And so when I work with a school district, I normally work with them for three years. Okay. And we start from the foundation. 
Because what I find is that they use words and concepts and constructs that they don't even understand. So we mm. literally start from the bottom and I build them up. Mm. I intensely, you know, work with the superintendent, the whole, they agree that the whole C-suite works with me. Okay. Uh, then we build up the middle level managers. And then I request that the school select at least two to four teachers who are not the favorites, but they truly are the leaders in the building. You know what I mean when I mm -hmm. say that? For so sure. it's not, yeah, because those teachers had the social credibility to make change. And I have, there you go. Mm -hmm. So if I can get them to understand and they just, they get as much intense um, training as their superintendent does, they actually learn side by side um, with their superintendent and their, you know, their associate superintendent and all of them. And then I develop train, training of trainer uh, mm -hmm. modules to build their capacity. And then I teach them how to coach. And that strategy has led to change in four diff different districts that I've um, worked with, large okay. uh, districts. And Are so- they in Maryland or other parts? No, <laughs> that's the good part. They're okay. all over because you can make a change in one place, but you don't know if that change will proliferate in other places. For sure. So um, I've worked with districts in Illinois, in Jersey, in Connecticut, and um, I've had clients in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And so we have done great work. And the most important part is when I finally see the students taking over, because I get the adults to, to learn how to act right, <laughs> just so that the students can take over, right? <laughs> and so to be able to see students who felt marginalized, who truly were marginalized, own their own learning. It is just, it's amazing to see. It brings tears to my eyes every time because that's what I didn't have in high school, mm. right? So it's that's always so me serving the old me. Mm. Even yeah. though your experience at high school was, you know, less than favorable. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a true testament to God turning the things around for your good. Oh, absolutely. You'd be able to use your, your pain for a purpose. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit um, as we continue our conversation about like, what is it? How do you apply your faith? You know, how does your What role does your faith play in <sighs> your everyday endeavors as you seek to advocate for those students who aren't uh, receiving the equity absolutely. in the school system as they, they should? Well, I am anchored in my faith. I have, um, I love God. Let me just start there. And everything I do starts from there. It starts from understanding serenity. I ask God to help me to understand the things that I can change, mm -hmm. help me to understand and accept the things that I can't. And really, of course, the wisdom, you know, to know the difference. And when I serve, because I, I choose servant leadership and mm -hmm. transformational leadership, I serve with a giving heart. And so, although I may not always talk specifically about religion in the things that I do, mm -hmm. I express and I exemplify the love of God in everything mm -hmm. that I do. That's so and that's the most important part, walking the walk. 
I remember when um, I've had five businesses and my first few businesses were pretty uh, lucrative. And my mom, who is truly my anchor, I love my dad, I'm a daddy's girl, but my mother holds me accountable in a different kind of way. I think she is God in the flesh, okay? (laughs) She holds me accountable. And she used to say, yeah, I see you making all this money and you're really blessed, but how are you serving? How are Mm. you back? Come on, mommy. (laughs) You know, from from the very beginning. And she used to say to my, you know, to my dad too. And so I grew up in the church, of course, singing on the children's choir. When some of those songs come on, it just, it sends me in a whole different place. And my, what do they say? Life for me ain't been no crystal stare. So, you know, people see A and they see B. They don't see all the stuff in between. It's the meantime, right? And there have been times in my life when I was emotionally and psychologically bankrupt. Mm. But I look good on the outside because, you know, we know how to keep that thing together. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, we do. But, um, you know, you, you, you feel like a fraud. It's like an identity crisis. You are successful on the outside, but you are dying on the inside. Mm. And in those moments, it reminded me that of my powerlessness in that, mm. if that makes sense. I'm powerful in some things, but in terms of being able to wake me up, being able to anchor me, being able to help me to see a, a brighter day, to understand when things are so, so difficult and you don't want to get out of bed, there is only God in you right there. Mm. And for some of the things, whether I was, you know, trying to overcome thyroid cancer, that was me and God, mm-hmm. nobody could serve me there right? I could not have a relationship with anyone that would have made that better. When I was in a deep, dark depression after my little brother passed away, nobody got me up out of that. That was me and God. You know, when I, I, like I said, I'm, you know, a survivor of domestic violence, sexual assault. In those moments, nobody could save me. It was only me and God. And so in all those times, you know, people like to you know, thank God for all the good things. I thank God for those moments when I could not do it for myself, Mm. you know, and my mama couldn't hug me. It wasn't, I didn't want none of that. You know what I'm saying? You know, Mm -hmm. those really dark places and to see where I am today living in abundance, Mm. there was nothing but my faith, but knowing, you know, the scripture, singing my songs, that was the only thing that really saved me. And I'm so blessed to have anchored my son in Christianity and the love of God and, you know, the level of conviction, the beautiful heart that he has, has all to do with him starting in church at a very early age and staying in Christian school throughout all of his, um, you know, his school years. Wow. And so listen, get me all watery eyes <laughs> it uh I wouldn't have made it and a lot of people don't make it they you know what I'm saying oh like <laughs> you gonna get me shouting here I mean it yes yes I mean you said so much but one of the things that really resonates with me is this idea that um out of everything that we've been through or you've been through you're able to translate 
all that you suffer into an act of service that's serving so many in so many different ways. Even if you never meet them, even if you never touch them, your shade tree, your legacy shade tree is, you know, kind of covering people and caring as your your business is the Center for Applied Research and Equity. That care is being shown to students, to those professionals and administrators and educators who are in it for the long haul, who are ready to serve, change, and grow as a result of the great work that you're doing. So I can definitely see how your faith and your works are showing up in your profession. So as we continue this conversation, it's been so good. It's been so and also so heartwarming. I'm talking with Lanice <laughs> Stevenson. She is a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. She's a consultant and she's doing a lot of great work in the educational advocacy space. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the work that you're doing for the students and what that looks like in the 20, um, this century, tw- 2022, you know, what do you foresee as some of the things that uh, will educators will be facing moving forward within the next 10 or 20 years? You know, we've come through COVID. It, it, a lot has changed. What do you see will be the repercussions of COVID as a result of what's been going on, this virtual space, um, masking, and all those things, this whole interpersonal, what effect do you think um, that we'll have on our students' education and how they evolve over time. And what can you, how do you see you adding value to what's going been going on? Yeah, wow. So I started my research firm before COVID hit. So it was the, it was 2019. And so when my, when my firm was a baby, like a real baby, <laughs> that's when the pandemic hit. And I was providing professional learning and conducting research at the time when the schools um, went into remote learning. Well, I wouldn't even call it remote learning. They stopped learning. And, you know, it was just the taxpayers are just paying for, you know, kids to be home. And, you know, people were just surviving. The school system is not nimble. And that is the number one challenge that we face today. It is inability to shift in real time. And I think that we have gotten a little better. It's almost like who moved my cheese? It's Mm. institutional inertia. The institution doesn't want to change unless it absolutely has to, right? We had to change because we couldn't have kids at home, not doing anything. And their parents were listening, right? And COVID taught us a lot. There were a lot of good things that came out of COVID. A lot of people would be like, why would you say that? Well, you know, remember I was talking about those blind spots, Mm. right? A lot Mm. of those blind spots were unearthed. For Mm. instance, the digital divide. Mm. Another one, you know, food insecurity, there were, I had clients calling me crying. These are big time leaders because they did not know that the families that were within walking distance of their school was not eating. They had no food. Wow. And they were like, well, we, we offered food for the community. I said, well, how do you communicate? 
so we started to unearth the communication structures that were put in place to marginalize poor people, but now it worked against them. Does that make mm. sense? So okay. I'm trying to reach it. So if you're using the same systems, once again, that are steeped in racism, classism, and sexism, Mm-hmm. You're not going to reach the very people because they weren't designed to do that, right? And so it was the unearthing of a lot of the inequities that we just just took as business as usual. Mm. And so when we saw, when the school districts tested their students and they saw the learning gaps, mm-hmm. they knew they had to do some things differently. And... I saw districts take many different, uh, use many different strategies. Uh, They would use, you know, individualized learning on computers. I see that that industry has grown significantly. You've had families take their students out of school. They had, you know, the means and just put them in virtual school for good. Mm -hmm. You've also had, you know, Baltimore City, they now have a virtual school, Mm -hmm. right? And so with that, you have, um, families that just sign their kids up to go to virtual school. Um, I don't know if that is the best option. I don't think that anything replaces good first teaching and a loving and caring, warm, demanding teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nothing can replace that. And so I see us going back to authentic caring. That is the only way that we're going to get students to return to school. That was a whole nother issue that a lot of districts faced. They couldn't reach their kids and their kids never came back. Hmm. I had a district I was working with that only retained 30% of their students. And I asked the question, why? Why can't you find your kids? Why won't your kids come back? If this is home, the kids will come back. The kids don't come back because they don't want to be here because you've created an environment that is averse to them. So mm-hmm. how can you change the environment? That's so right. Oh my. You understand what I'm saying? Like I get down to the nuts and bolts because that's what this is about. Kids will come just like Devin, my, my fine example. Mm-hmm. He knew, he knows to this day, I saw him last week. Now he is famous and everything. He ran up to me. Can I please take a picture? Oh my gosh, he he wanted to tell everybody about this is my favorite teacher. Oh my gosh, just take some pictures. And I'm like, everybody runs over, take pictures of you, but he knows that I love him. Mm. There's never a question. And I only want the best out of him. When I ask him, how you doing? He understands what I mean. That authentic love. And most teachers, if you ask them, because I, I teach a lot of new teachers, how do or why do you get into this profession? It always typically starts from the heart. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes into this to get rich. You know, some people may go <laughs> to get their student loans paid off, whatever. But <laughs> for the most part, in general, people go into it because they they love, they want to help. And True. some some way or another, we get jaded. And I say we because at a moment I got jaded. Right, things got hard and. When I went into a different school district that was pretty wealthy, um, where I experienced racism and classism a lot, Mm -hmm. even though I was the leader, um, I got jaded and I almost lost my love for it. You know, so everybody gets into it and and finds either a deep love 
but there's always, you know, the opposite side as well. And so to answer your question, where I see the trends going, there are a lot of teachers leaving Mm. because of those stresses. And so what I typically tell leaders is if we're expecting teachers to love on their kids, we got to love on them. We have to model that love and care and compassion and empathy. It all starts there. You know, and so I am not the traditional expert. I mean, I know my mm-hmm. stuff. You asked me a question, I know it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I have done all of this. Uh, I've spent my entire life in school to be able to be that voice of care and concern, starting from the heart. So they asked me a question. I first had the heart talk, and then I have the scholarly talk, right? Mm-hmm. Because I always want to remind people that we start from just being good human beings and just deeply caring. That's interesting. You know, I taught high school in Baltimore City for just two years. Um, I kind of got burnt out. Um, Just a real quick story. I um, went into a new teacher. I I wasn't even necessarily expecting to go into teaching so soon. I always wanted to teach. My goal was to be work as a professor. And so... I knew that I needed to work on my master's post-graduation and um, get into teaching in the topic or um, area of that I wanted to get into for academic teaching. And so I taught and it was good, but then I started to do well and then they started to pack my classroom. Yes. And so as a new teacher who, by the way, I did not, I was not certified. I was going through the program, you know, work on the certification mm-hmm. before um, I got it. I was able to teach the whole program that they had. I did the same at thing. That time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was teaching English first year test scores started to go up and mm-hmm. then they said, okay, all right, she got this. So we're going to give her 40 students. So I'm a new teacher. I just got into the classroom had not did any real training other than the new teacher training program the summer after I graduated from college. And it was, became very, very overwhelming to me. Absolutely. Um, and packing out my classroom, they had to get, bring new chairs in a classroom of 21, 25 went to close to 40 each, every, every, every period. Yeah. And so I just, I had to go. <laughs> it just became too overwhelming for me. I think that I could have had some longevity, in um at the high school um level teaching because I did not want to do um elementary or middle school but I think I could have had some type of longevity in that career and career education in that way but it just was too much but I'm facing I I was facing similar challenges as far as burnout um at the academic level I had started teaching at the university level at Coppin State University in 2010, and I taught there for many, many years until I transferred over to Morgan State University teaching adjunct. But I just faced so many challenges um, because I care deeply, because I love deeply, because I care so much um, about my students and wanting to nearly just, if I could, just give them my whole brain <laughs> so Absolutely. they can, um, you know, take and run and take what I've learned and flourish in their own professions and areas of interest um, because. I say that English is one of the best kept <laughs> secrets or majors because we have to learn philosophy, history, um, psychology in order to kind of um, unpack and write 
or unpack and teach or whatever we're doing, we need to um, just, I guess, how shall I say, grasp hold of a number of topics in order to kind of like present it in a way that's meaningful and understandable in a written or verbal communication style. But aside from my soapbox on that, <laughs> I just found that my students, it was just hard for me to even get them to even want to do some of their work. Um, and, I, you know, so this whole idea about burnout, but I experienced it in a different way at the co- collegiate level. And yeah. maybe it's because of the types of students I was teaching, um, schools I was teaching at. But I just, you know, experienced so much burnout, but I love teaching so much. So this idea about burnout, but burnout from a different perspective really triggers me, um, really touches me. What can you offer to some of the teachers out there who say, Lanice, I want to continue teaching. I want to, you know, just level my students. I have the passion. I have the desire, but it's hard. Is there any tips, tools, or strategies that you would give to them to help them kind of reboot and reframe their thinking in ways that keeps them going, keeps them in the fight, keeps them advocating for their students? Anything you want to share? Absolutely. I have been there. Let me just start with, (laughs) I have been there quite a few times um, when you're passionate about something you you put your all into it yes but you don't leave yourself anything Hmm. like you you leave yourself empty and we get awards for leaving ourselves empty like so the first thing I would say is you have to start with you you have to love on yourself you have to advocate for yourself you have to care for yourself on that day that you feel like you are completely burned out and you can't go in, guess what you got to do? You can't go in. You have to always fill your cup. That is, that is the very first thing that I learned. I have to be able to come with a filled cup. And I have to make sure that my children have a filled cup because if my family, my structure, my foundation is not good, I can't go out and serve well. They're just getting a piece of me. They're not getting the best part of me, right? Mm -hmm. But I also got to leave something behind for myself. So you have to figure out how to balance life, your your love, your spirituality, and your service. They all, they're all, all of them deserve your time. They deserve your energy, but they can't, none of them can have all of it. Secondly, you have to create synergy with your colleagues and your colleagues don't have to be, or I should say your peers, your peers don't have to be in your school because I know some teachers who have been teaching in schools who have had substitutes, long-term substitutes in their schools, in their departments forever. Mm. And so they don't always have the opportunity to have colleagues in close proximity that can they can create synergy with. But now we have, Uh, Twitter, we have social media, we Mm -hmm. have LinkedIn, create real professional learning communities, not the ones they force you to have, but Mm -hmm. really create these professional learning communities and lean on other colleagues. And if you are teaching English 10 and they're teaching English 10, guess what? You all can come together to to, uh, co-plan or do common planning. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. You should not have to do all of this alone. That's good. We get burned out because we want to control everything or we haven't thought about how we we could collaborate with others, right? So we can carry this burden together. So that's number two. 
Number three, you have to know when enough is enough. And we all do know when enough is enough. We do. And we just be like, oh, I'm going, but I got a little bit more in me. And I want to get, I'm going to get that, that, you know, that award for being worn out. Mm. Enough is enough. I am done with this particular school. Let me go and serve in other ways. Mm. And I know how important it is for a student to have their teachers stay at their school. But if that school is not serving you, that environment is not serving you. If it's toxic, trust me, it is not only hurting you in that environment. It is hurting you in every other aspect of your life. And because we are wired to be social, Mm -hmm. that means it's hurting other people. So you have to see the forest through the trees. Mm. I decided that I was going to give up one career so that I could move on to bigger things, to make a larger impact. It was so difficult for me because I loved it so much. But I realized that enough was enough. Mm. So interesting. I bowed out, bowed out thing to make such a greater impact. And now my clients say, we just, can you reproduce yourself? Well, that's what I do. I just reproduce myself all over. And then I help them to grow so that they don't need me. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And so you also always, if I was still a teacher right now, I will also be helping those new teachers. I will be pouring into them because they have a lot of great ideas. They're just so innovative. They are so fresh. Use their energy, feed off of their energy. They just want to do stuff. Give them something to do. Take a little little Mm -hmm. load off of yourself. You have to think through your stress. And that is hard to do because when the amygdala is hijacked, our prefrontal cortex doesn't work. So we don't, we don't, we're not able to really think critically, but you have to think about whether it's journaling, what is cathartic to you? Figure those things out. And typically we figure those things out when we have a positive day. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so those are the tips that I have, but always start with prayer, understand what you cannot control, Ask God for the wisdom to know the difference and accept the things that you just have to accept right now. You don't have to accept them all the time, but there are certain things that you will have to accept as right now, right? Mm. That's interesting. Um, You've said so much, but you said so many good things. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Before we hop off, I just want to have a quick conversation with you about the great work um, that your son is doing all the way at Morehouse and ATL. Um, He is a student there, as I understand from so And I just want to talk about, you know, you raise a black son in America. I'm sure you have to be, um, you know, very, very proud of him, but also he's far away. He's not home. He's not in Maryland with you. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, you know, which have you had to advocate for your son's own education? What that looks like? um, And how did that show up for you as a, a single parent? So let me tell you, I am a very kind person, (laughs) but But. when it comes to my son and his experiences, oh, they're going to be good. Mm. And I had to rely on teachers 
who were an hour, an hour and a half away from me every day to care for my son. Mm. My son, I private schooled him, not because the public schools weren't great, but because I worked so far, I had to send him to a school where I could drop him off at 6 a.m. and pick him up at 6 p.m., right? I also wanted to uh, um, have a school that allowed my son to pray and to develop conviction, to know God, right? And so I always, when people tell me how great or impressed they are with my son, I always tell them it was the village Mm -hmm. because there's no possible way as a single black mom, I don't care how much money, how much intelligence, whatever, you cannot do that alone. I had to rely on so many different people to pour into my son. And because I'm a single mom, that means his dad wasn't around. And so there were so many men that stepped up to just, they, my son is easy to love. He's a great listener. You know, he's a sponge and he's extremely respectful and kind. And so those are attributes that anybody would love. And so they just love on him. And so there are so many lessons that my son learned that I did not teach him. And I'm just so blessed to be his mom. Mm. He taught me a lot about being a good mom, (laughs) a whole lot. And so I have permitted him, even as a a small child, to hold me accountable. I think that when people hear that, some of them might grimace like, what? You just, (laughs) yeah, because he's another human being and Mm. I am cultivating the best life for him. If he doesn't feel like I'm doing a good job, I gave him the liberty to say, mom, can you do this a little better? And by far, it made me a better person. Hmm. And so the relationship that I have with my son is based on mutual respect, mutual accountability. And this was from the very, like when he was very young. And so my son is at Morehouse. He's a sophomore. He's studying yeah. economics. Um, he is also a trader. Um, so he trades on the money market. He learned how to trade when he had a corporate um, internship at Exelon. Mm. With the Crystal Ray, I, I thank God for Crystal Ray Jesuit High School because it was the game changer. I did all that I could for him, giving him a good education, but Crystal Ray um, provided him with the opportunity to have a corporate internship with Exelon for four years. He was wow. on the trading floor. So he learned how to trade with the big guys at 14 years old. That's awesome. And so that was a skill that he kept and he is still I'm using today. And also he's been a music producer since he was 14 years old. And so he, I've allowed him to follow his curiosity and I just funded it. Whatever he wanted to do, he was in the arts. He loved computers. He, whatever you want to do, I am here to serve. And just as I serve as a leader, I served as a parent and it really paid off. I know that if, you know, I die the day of tomorrow, he is okay. He got everything that he needs to be successful. And that allows me to rest very well. And so um, now it's just, you know, it's, it's hard, hmm. you know, having your kid away from you because you spend so much time with them. It brings tears to my eyes too. It was really hard as an empty nester um, because we had never been away from each other. I mean, I fly around. And so we might have spent a week away from each other because I was on travel, mm-hmm. but I always came back, you know, and when he left and he didn't come back, oh, I had a really, really hard time. Um, but when my son told me that I had done a good job as a mom and now it was his turn, I was like, wow. So I came back home and I was like, 
well, I got to figure out who I am. Again. <laughs> I got to, you know, and it took some time and I, I did figure it out. And um, we are now, our relationship has changed because he's a young adult. I still take care of him. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, I just am there to, to support and to give advice when he needs it. But it's just a joy to be able to see him navigate life in a, in a really successful way. And so he just finished his um, internship with Hopkins. He was on a special assignment in the neurology department. And so he um, worked on their fundraising campaign so that he could help advocate for neurological disorders. And mm. so everything that he does is in service of others too. So I'm really proud of him. Oh, wow. You definitely planted some great seeds in your son. Yeah. I'm super proud. Um, I don't know him, but I'm proud as if I'm a, a far, far away cousin. <laughs> so wishing him all the best at Morehouse and looking Thank forward you. to all of the great things that he will do in service of others like his mom. How about that? Thank you. So before we hop off, I just got a couple questions for you. What keeps you full of carriage? You know, you're able to stand up and be care and be courageous enough to really step into your purpose you know all those years ago you said about 30 years ago in high school you had that encounter encounter with the teacher but here you are now living right in abundance living in purpose tell me what gives you the courage to keep going every day man hmm I just keep going before the fear sets in. Mm. I never give myself the opportunity to be fearful, right? And the things that keep me up at night, if I don't do something about them, they would just torture me, right? So when I rest at night and I can rest well, I know that I'm going in the right direction. And I pray a lot. I pray a lot. I meditate. I spend a lot of time alone um, in, in my quiet time. And that really is my anchor. And so that courage doesn't just come from me. Uh, God always walks with me. Mm, you know, yeah, we talk yeah. like, listen, I'm about to go do this. And having those constant conversations with God and with myself, I know that I'm doing the right thing. You know, you feel it in your gut. And so I do it before the fear sets in because fear is always going to be there. Mm -hmm. You just got to do it before the timing has to be right. right. They say do it and scared. So, yeah. Yeah. And so whether I'm doing, you know, a keynote speaker last year, I was flown to the Ritz Carlton on Amelia Island to deliver the keynote. Mm. Little old me, I stand five foot three and I did it. And I didn't even have to do it scared. It's, it's just like when you know you're walking in your purpose, it, it, it is just like walking with grace. You just mm. do it. You belong there. You just do it. Mm -hmm. And you know that you belong there. That's right. Absolutely. But I am so humble and so grateful for every single blessing because I know that it does not have to be this way. Right. I wasn't always like this. My mama was always there to plant those seeds, to tell me how blessed I was. And then one day I recognized all of those blessings. And so when you know you're walking in your purpose, there's going to be abundance, period. When you yeah, are aligned yeah. mm -hmm. 
with your passion and your purpose, there's going to be abundance. Mm. And fear cannot exist there. Mm, you know no that's yeah. so good yeah so when I say what does it mean for girls to go global I truly believe that you Lanise are a global girl you are empowering your faith you got that strategy you got that know-how to plug in and do what it is that you know that you were called to do and you got that courage to stand up every day um, stand flat-footed and say I'm here I'm here to serve and I'm going to do it with grace what does it mean when I say girls go global oh my goodness That means living in your purpose and sharing your gifts with the world. The world needs it. The world deserves it. You deserve it. It is truly living every single day on purpose and amplifying your voice in a way that helps everyone that you touch. That's what I think Girls Go Global means. So, oh my goodness, this has been such a, such a great conversation, such, so heartwarming. And I have been talking to Miss Lanise Stevenson. She is an educational advocate. She is a founder of the CARE organization where she is advocating for students, professors, educators, and administrators across this country. So if you are looking for support within your organization, or even if you are looking to connect with Lanise, how can they get in touch with you? Well, of course, I'm on social media. You can also um, hit me up on my website. It's www.laniestevenson.com, L-A-N-I-S-E, Stevenson.com. But you can also find me on social media. I always say that I'm a good date. If you DM me and you're serious about anything, I will message you. We can jump on a call. I am always just a phone call, text or email away, so... That's so good. And before we hop off, I really, really, really feel led to just share a prayer, not only for the work that you're doing, but also for those educators, for those students out there. I think we just need to cover this conversation with the prayer. And so just real quick, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Lanise, who I met many, many years ago at the Urban League event. We thank you, Lord, for the work that she's doing, the advocacy work. We even thank you for protecting her son all the way at Morehouse, Father. We thank you for covering him with your blood, with your power, dispatching your angels toward him, Father, in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for the work that Lanise is doing. We thank you for giving her strategies, insight, and intuition regarding how to serve. And we pray for those administrators, students, and professional in the educational realm. Continue to birth in them all that you call for them. We thank you for protecting our students, even in our schools, Father. We thank yeah. you that no hurt, harm, or danger shall come, not their dwelling, in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for what you're going to do in and through each and every one of these students across this country and across the globe. We thank you for your hedge of protection. We thank you for insight, strategies, and intuition to flourish in their purpose, in the mighty matchless name of Jesus, I pray today. Amen. Amen. Lanise, I want to thank you for joining me. I've loved this conversation. Continue to go global. This has been the Girl Go Global podcast where faith and works are empowered. Looking forward to new content every week. Don't forget to share review. Talk soon. Go global, girl.